0: and the rest of us will be in First Samuel chapter 18 and 19 as we go through the life of David. So I remember when I was about uh, 17 or 18 years old, um, yeah, that was a few years ago, but I remember it, um, and I was working at a place called Country Kitchen. Any, any of you ever eaten at a country kitchen? Oh, we got a couple. All right, so it's... Think Perkins, about the same thing there. Um, Denny, something like that. Chain out there in the in Iowa. And anyway, I was working there as a cook, and the one of the owners is owned by two people. One of them bought another store that they were going to take over and manage, and uh, they asked me to, or this manager, one, asked me uh, to come over there with him. Our owner, one, asked me to come over and, and work for him, and he offered me a raise. And I said, sure. Uh, and... The other really wants you to stay, and we'll give you a bigger raise than what he was going to give you. And I said, Well, you you know, I had never been in a bidding war before, you know, but (laughs) I've already given him my word that I was going to go. And uh, and this manager, she looked at me and she says, Well, just remember, you got to look out for number one in life because no one else is going to. Now, what do you think about that statement? Uh, You probably heard some variation of that, right? You got to look out for number one. I didn't really know how to respond, like I said, I was 17, Um, and she was positioned with authorities, and I was, but later on, I began to think, is that really true? We're going to look at a story of someone who didn't look out for number one, and what happened to him, and we're going to look at a story who, of someone, same story, who looked out (coughs) dramatically, emphatically for number one, and we see what happened to him as well. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, the story of David and Saul, right after the story of David's defeat of, of the Philistines. We've prayed already, but will you join me one more time? Father, I ask that you would open your word to us. It's not my word. I didn't write it. I just want to get it right, God. And I just want us to be able to rejoice in what you're doing, to be comforted in, the, in that, to not have to shout in anxiety for our own way. Lord, please apply this as you see fit. I need this in a different way than everyone else here, and everyone else needs it in their own unique way. So would you apply it, please? Would you give us grace this morning in this way? Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. So, chapter 17, David defeats Goliath, right? And everything's going great. And it says, after this, David finished talking with Saul. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as, in, as himself. I love how one Bible version translates this. Their their souls were knit together. not a great way of putting that? From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now we could stop here, but I'm actually going to save most of this part with Jonathan for next week or the week after, because we'll be focusing on those two. took off his robe, as well as his royal equipment. We have to remember, this is the king's firstborn son, the heir apparent. So I, I read into this more than just, oh, hey, this is some nice clothing here. You want to try it on? I, I, I read into this, there's possibly even, uh, he's already seen that David is going to be the true next king of Israel. Reading between the lines here, but I think that's probably right. And then uh, it says David went out and achieved success because God was with him. And then it says this And when the men were re- returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And this is where the trouble begins. Right, Saul was not happy with this little ditty. <laughs> he was very angry. The refrain galled him or just dis- displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands. May me with only thousands. What more can he get than the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye, a jealous eye, is the idea, on David. So, the trouble begins in Saul's mind, David has got nothing wrong. Throughout this you're going to see he doesn't do anything disloyal, but it's all in Saul's mind. This is where it begins. Now, a little couple of verses later, we're told in in chapter 18 very exactly what was going on here. So the narrator, inspired by God, is kind of telling us the meaning of all that's happened. The Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And you recall that the Spirit had come upon Saul, but unlike in New Testament times where it seems the Spirit lives within us without ceasing, uh, the way he came upon Saul was to enable him to to be God's anointed, to do God's work, and when Saul rejected that role, he was rejected by God. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops and their companions. Now, The idea here, of course, is let's see if we can get him killed off in battle. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And this is perhaps the key verse here of this whole section. It's going to be talking about David's success. And when you read David's story, especially when you hear his rise, it's easy to get the wrong impression. Sometimes we preachers feed this wrong impression that David is the hero of the story. He's not. God is the hero of the story. David is the beneficiary. And yes, he did a lot of things right. But the reason he had success was not his great military prowess on his own, was not his great wisdom, not his great skill, not his great bravery. He had success because the Lord was with him. He had looked at David. There was something in David he said made him suitable for his king. And so he uh, placed himself in this relationship... When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Um, But all Israel and Judah loved him, loved David, because he led them in their campaigns. So twice we're told that Saul, the most powerful man in the kingdom, at least on paper, was afraid of this young man, young commander of his. And then, so he begins to do some things here. And first thing he does, and again, I'm not going to go through every part because this is two whole chapters, so l- let me just summarize some of the, the strategies of Saul then. Saul is going to then do everything he can. He begins, there's like seven different things he does to try to, to get David out of his hair and out of the kingdom, actually. And so the first thing he does, we already saw, he, he sent some, David to be a commander when that doesn't work, he lets David be a, a commander of a special group. I get the impression it's more of a, of a, like a special forces squad, you know, doing dangerous tasks. Because he says, oh, okay, I'm not going to kill David. I'm going to let the Philistines take care of that. I'm just going to put David in a position where they can do it. And so that's what he does. But David is successful in all this. Um, so, he, he, again, he's thwarted in that. Uh, and so instead, he's got a daughter, Merib. And he says, okay. I'm going to have, I'll let David marry Merib, but I'll make the bride price. He has to fight this, you know, get this, kill this many Philistines. And uh, David apparently does that. Merib is given to Mary to someone else. Um, not, we're not told all the details. Probably we're seeing signs already. This Saul is inconstant. He changes his mind. He's irrational at times. But in any case, some time passes, and he hears that his daughter uh, Michal... When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became more afraid of him and he remained his enemies the rest of his days. So what, David, what Saul had done here was he tried to, again, do the same ploy. I'm going to send David out to battle to, with maybe his men to get 100 Philistines as the, the bride price, as it were. David gets 200 before the time. And everything he does, he, does, he is successful because God is with him. And now he's lost his daughter. Their daughter's affections are with this young man. And now, you know, this young man is actually his son-in-law. So he's got not an heir to the throne, uh, but he's in the family now. Everything he's doing towards David turns out to actually make David stronger. This is the way that Saul is spending his days. You see, in next chapter, chapter 19, Saul go from bad to worse. And again, we're not going to read all of this, but I just want to summarize it. First thing we we hear is that Saul drops all pretense and says, I'm just going to have David killed. So he gathers his commanders around him, and, and Jonathan, his son, is with him. And Jonathan, his son, warns David. And then he goes to intercede and says, Dad, what are you doing? You know? He's been your most faithful warrior. We all rejoiced when he killed Goliath, and we had a great victory that day, and God's used him. He just doesn't, hasn't done anything disloyal to you. And Saul was, was hear, heard that. he changed his mind. Saul is still pliable at this point. But David is, <laughs> you know, he's getting the impression by now that this, this Saul is not the most constant character, right? He changes his mind, flips back and forth. And uh, so David's back in his court, and there's great victory, and they, when everyone should be celebrating, they're probably sitting around feasting or whatever, he picks up his spear and throws it at David in this fit of, of rage and anger that comes upon him. And David ducks and gets out of the way. Saul goes one step further. says, I want you to camp out around the house. When he comes out in the morning, I want you to kill him and bring him to me. Michal, his daughter, somehow hears about it. She warns David. She says, if you don't flee out the window this night, you're going to be dead in the morning. So he takes her advice. He flees. He leaves Jerusalem. She takes a, an idol, an image of some kind, puts it in the bed, puts horse hair over it. Guys come to get him in the morning. She says, look, he's sick. And apparently there's some code of honor back then. You're not going to yank a sick guy out of his bed and kill him. So they go report to Saul. He says, I don't care. Get him anyway. And they go and get the discovery. They discover it. And of course, he's a little bit ticked off at his daughter, right? And she says, and she lies to his to her father. Well, he said he'd kill me if he didn't, if you know, if I didn't let him go. You see what's happening here. His own son Jonathan has tipped off David and has interceded. His own daughter Merab or Michal is siding with him and helping him get away. Things are going from bad to worse. The last scene of chapter nineteen, the last scene that we're going to cover today, <laughs> is almost comic. David runs to Samuel in this uh, place called Naioth, and he runs to Samuel to, you know, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> Saul's trying to kill me. I haven't done anything. Saul hears about it. He says thirty men to go to Samuel, who is leading a group of prophets there at this town, and uh, he says thirty men. And it says as they were approaching the town and Samuel's encampment, the spirit of God fell on them, and they began prophesying. And they said, "What does that look like?" I don't know, but I get the impression that it was somehow disabling to them, like they were rolling around in, in some sort of ecstasy or, or trance or something, because they couldn't fulfill their duty. Well, Paul, Saul hears about this. He doubles down, sends out another 30 guys. Same thing happens. They come back. So what does he do? Well, he, he does it again, sends out another 30 guys. You know what the definition of insanity is, right? Saul is starting to lose it here. And when those 30 guys, same thing happens to them, he thinks it'd be a great idea if he goes himself with some of his men, no doubt, to do the same thing. And guess what happens? The Spirit of God falls upon him. What what an irony here, in a sense. Because when it fell on him originally, it made him more than what he was. Here it makes him less. Because God's judgment is against him in his plans. It says the Spirit of God fell upon him and he began prophesying. And it says... He stripped off his clothes and lay naked on the ground for a whole day prophesying, and he couldn't fulfill this plan that he wanted to do. Think of that. The great king of Israel laying on the ground naked in a state of frenzy that he can't even control. He's lost the power. On paper, he's the most powerful man in the country. In reality, the reality is quite different. Now, what do, I, uh, what do I see in this story for us? Well, a couple things. Do you notice, if you read this chapter, everyone's doing things. Uh, Jonathan's doing things. Jonathan's talking. Mikkel's doing things. She's talking. She helps David. Saul's doing a lot of things, right? And he's got all these speeches. You can, the narrator tells us his thoughts. You know who's not doing anything? David. In fact, in these two chapters, the only speech he's got is saying, who am I to marry the king's daughter? I'm just a poor guy. Chapter 18, that's all he says. Chapter 19, he doesn't say a thing. In fact, in in this whole time, he's not doing anything except what's directed to him by others. He doesn't even flee himself until his wife tells him that he should do it. It's her initiative that, that saves him in that. You see, what's happening here, one of the things I see is this, divine contrast in this divine portrait of, of David as being in a way passive in a certain sense. Now David was not a passive man but there's a certain divine passivity that he... M- psalm 16. This is going to be our background for this, this last part here. This is a psalm I believe when David wrote when he was on the run. Why do I say that? Well, because this is a technical term at the, the superscription of the psalm of midcamp and it's in five other psalms, 56 through 60, and they're all when he's on the run from, from Saul or, or one other time when there's a great danger. So this is probably when he's in trouble from Saul. In any case, we know he's in trouble of some kind. Keep me safe, O God, for, you, for in you I take refuge. So his life is threatened. He wants God to, to save him and, and take him refuge. And what does he do in this? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, Apart from you, I have no good thing. And he goes on, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Here's what he's doing. In the midst of all this, we don't see in Samuel one thing that David does, or really one thing he says. But we have in this beautiful book of Psalms what's going on in his mind at times like this. Now, with that background of Saul on the one hand and David on the other, I want to bring out four points here of application for us. And uh, four points that are going to apply to you and to me. First of all, God is always working. The hero of the story is God. It's not David. David's the beneficiary. But the one who is working, the one who is doing, the one who is putting things all for his purpose is God. Do you remember what it says in Romans 8.28? I bet some of you do. (laughs) And we know that in all things, God works together, all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in a sense, that's what David was. God had a purpose in mind for him, and God called him to that. But that verse in Romans, he's talking about us. Because we also have been called to a purpose. In a sense, we also are going to be raised up towards God's purpose to something better than we can understand. We will be those who reign with Christ. We will be those who are a royal priesthood. We will be those who are remade into his image. We will be those who judge angels. This is God's purpose. God is working all things for the good, for our good in his purpose. Now, we'll notice, though, here in this, God's ways and God's working are going to kind of seem hidden or odd or even painful. You know, in the whole story of David, there's not one unambiguous miracle. There are things God does, but not things that couldn't be explained by what happens to people. In these hidden ways, using the friendship of Jonathan, the love of Michal, uh, and, and all the other things that are around. I mean, he, he could have just sent a lightning bolt down and it took care of Saul right when he wanted to, right? But he doesn't. There's a hidden way of purpose. And, and along with that is through his own timing. Fifteen years, the best I can figure it, go by from when David was anointed at, uh, at Bethlehem to when he begins to assume the throne. Fifteen years. It tells us that God's plans are so dependent on who we are inside that He's willing to sacrifice the timing in order to train us to make us what we would not be otherwise. God's always at working. As part of that, here's the second point. God frustrates evil plans. We see it here, right? He brings it to brings them to futility. But more than that, God uses Evil for good. Now we have to be careful here. God is not the author of evil in the sense that he desires it and created it to continue. But God did allow evil, I believe, to partly honor our free will and to make us uh, fully moral beings who can be like him. He allowed that, and in his great purpose, he will not only end it, but in the meantime, he will weave it together in this tapestry, using it for our good. We know that in all things, God works together for good. You know in that chapter, he goes on to talk about some of the things that Christians have had to suffer in Romans chapter 8. And you know, Paul's not saying those are good things. They're not, they're not good in that sense. But they're able to be used by God for good purposes. Everything that Saul does God not only frustrates, but he turns around and uses it for David's good. I'm going to snare him with my daughter, Michal. Michal's the one who saves him. You know, I'm going to send him out to, to, to battle the Philistines and get killed. He's successful and raises him more in, this, in the status of the people. Everything he does, God uses it for good. This is a, a microcosm, a picture of our life. We're not going to see it. David doesn't see it at the moment but God is working even the evil that people do to you, even the evil that happens to us. God is using that for our good. That is the promise of this word. God is a hero of this story because he's working even frustrating evil plans in this way. As someone put it, the devil always pulls God's cart. Third point, our role is to work and wait. Now, I said David was passive. That's true in one sense. He he wasn't grasping. David worked, though. I mean, he did whatever his hand was put before him by by God's direction. It's not like he didn't do anything. But the point is, in all these chapters, in all this rise to power, David did nothing to grasp that power. He did nothing to undermine Saul. He did nothing to, to grit the kingdom for himself. In fact, later on we'll see that when he has a chance to kill Saul twice, he doesn't do it. Why? Trust. Because he is trusting that God's word will come fully true without him doing anything that would violate his call, his duty, his obedience. David worked, but he did not grasp. Did not grasp. I wonder, are there things in our life that we're grasping? Maybe things that are beyond our reach that we're aiming for. Or maybe things are already in our grip that we don't really want to let go of. And we'll, we'll do anything like Saul to keep that from slipping out. Do something for me here. I don't ask you to do too many things, like do weird things like, you know, uh, repeat after me or say this. But, but do one thing, right? I want you to take your, your fist, your right fist or left fist, whichever handed you are, and squeeze it tight like you're really grasping something towards you. How does that feel? Now open that same hand as if you were receiving something from God. Does it one feel so much freer, less painful, less anxious? What are those things? It might be for a relationship to be a certain way, a marriage. You want it to be a certain way, it's not. You're grasping. It might be for a job situation. It might be for some extracurricular activity. Or it might be for a certain result financially or or status-wise, career-wise, an advancement. Are we grasping? I'm not saying we don't work towards those things. I'm saying, what if God doesn't give us those things? Are we okay? Or what if it takes a long time, 15 weeks, 15 months, 15 years like David. Are we okay to say, God, if it's really good for me, in your timing, I would like to receive this. David was a divine passive in that sense. One of the most active men but you see in Psalm Psalm 131, we won't go there because of the time, but he also knew when to wait on the lord. All right, last last part. Remember, <laughs> the battle is not what it seems. The battle is not what it seems. Now, remember last time David was the one who was able to see that this conflict with Goliath was not a battle between Goliath and whoever got or whoever was stupid enough to go out there to fight Goliath. It was that wasn't the battle. The battle was between the God of Israel and the God especially of the Philistines, and, and, and his representative, who was just having to be really big. But he wasn't bigger than Yahweh. So David was able to see that, because his heart was set upon Yahweh. He was looking toward Yahweh, and everyone didn't. In this situation, it's a little bit trickier, because there's not some eight- or nine-foot giant over there with a spear. Instead, it's the very king of Israel that he's in conflict with. But David, as we saw in Psalm 16, he makes these, all these psalms, and, and there's so many, and you see him wrestle spiritually with all the implications of the great promise of God, and yet, where is it? I'm living here another month in the cave. and He's wrestling with this. You see, when we look at this from the eyes of the narrator and, and all that's going on, we know the story. We, we see almost a contest between Saul and God, right? Saul says, David's going to be my king. Saul says, no. <laughs> he's not. In fact, I'm going to kill him. And Saul, well, who is Saul? You know. But that's our viewpoint because we're given the scripture and the narrator is telling this to us. The people on the ground, they didn't see that. They saw a power struggle between a mighty king and, a, and one of his warriors, and if you're going to put money on who's going to win this outcome, if there was a, a betting league down there and they're betting on, you know, who's going to win, you wouldn't put it on David. You'd put it on the guy with the army. you put it on the guy with the money and the wealth and the title. He's going to squash that guy like a bug. Now, the reason I want to bring that out is this. <laughs> we live seeing what's right in front of us, like the people in the story. But there's another element of someone who sees it from above and is directing the course of our lives towards something good. We don't see all the ways he's doing that. We don't see the way that it's going to work out towards our good. In fact, sometimes it going to seem the opposite. But the promise of God is that the battle is his, and he is working these things out. Uh, so this is one of my favorite time of years because of the leaves falling. Uh, it's bittersweet because I, I kind of hate the bare trees in the winter. But to see the leaves falling is, is a very beautiful sight. And one of the things I like to do sometimes is go out by the stream here in town or, or another stream and just watch them fall in the water and begin to float away. Now, if you ever do that, um, you'll notice something. You'll notice that as these leaves fall, sometimes they get stuck because they're behind a stick or a rock or a log jam of some kind. And sometimes if the wind is right, They'll even be pushed upstream for a while, but you also know that those stream, that stream has a current that's going to head those leaves down in the way that it goes. There are tides of our life where, on the surface, or even pretty, you know, well, not just on the surface, but to our eyes, it looks like we're stuck or we're going backwards. That God's plan and promises are not being fulfilled. God says there is a current here that's stronger than that wind that blows up once in a while. That won't do every law of Jim. There is a current of my grace. You don't have to fight this battle. You have to believe and receive. Because this battle is mine. Saul tried to make a spiritual battle a physical one. He thought he could solve it by what people do and their natural power and resources. David, faced with this physical battle, understood it was really a spiritual one. And he looked at God and responded accordingly. Well, I'm going to end here. And we'll pick this up next time as we talk more about God's purpose in the midst of this. But as we go, let me just close your eyes. Let me ask you to close your eyes. And as the worship team comes, they're going to sing that song that we began the service with, See a Victory. You know, this is one of those where even as I'm writing this sermon I'm thinking I don't know how God exactly you want people to respond to this. But think upon this idea that God is always working. He's always working for your good if you are in Christ. Because he's always with you. But it won't look like that all the time. They're going to become things that look like the exact opposite. And you're going to have to decide whether you're going to grasp and try to make things right through your own power and ways and wisdom or whether you're going to turn to the Lord like David and say, help. Help me to receive your help, God, in this. I don't know where that finds you, but I think if you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, he will show you. Father, thank you. That's not up to us. (laughs) That's about your grace, not our performance. Not how much we get right. Thank you for that. Lord, help us to uh, lift up this last song as a true statement of belief because of who you are. Thank you. Amen. Please stand. Mm